Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Welcome everyone. My name is Chris Dolman from Emerging Minds. In today's episode, you will be hearing a conversation I had with Bill Wilson, an Aboriginal cultural consultant who works with us here. In this conversation, Bill will speak about his work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and the different narrative approaches used in practice to highlight their strengths, skills and resilience. This podcast picks up our conversation where we were talking about the importance of listening to how people are responding to the difficulties they face and how they are finding a way through those difficulties. I think one of the biggest things for me around uh, you know, the narrative framework is that it, it does give um, our mob the opportunity to get a little bit of separation from the problem right. within that. Yes. And, and I think that's important because I think with you know, various workers who are married to their, to their frameworks of engagement, mm-hmm. uh, in, in particularly with Aboriginal people, mm-hmm. is that you need to hear what are some of the strengths that exist within that particular person or more, more specifically within their entire kinship, right. what are the strengths yeah. that exist mm-hmm. for them mm-hmm. and what they draw resilience from. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think that's one of the things that works so well with our mob from a, from a narrative perspective. Mm-hmm. Because you can get engrossed in what is the problem story or what are the issues for that particular person. Yes. And I think some workers can feel that if they solve those issues, then they've done their work with that particular person. But I think it's more around trying to find out what are their external supports. Right. And I think that's one of the strengths of Aboriginal families is that in particular their kinship and their kinship structures. Mm that there are multiple sources of support for them that can assist them in their own journey. Mm. From a narrative perspective with our mob, it it allows them to share that problem story but also steps them into the spaces of what is their preferred story for themselves and for their families. I was interested in how you drew, drew a bit of a distinction there. You started talking a bit about the strengths of the individual, but then you sort of was quick to broaden that more around the strengths of their kinship networks and, and that. Like in terms of the work that you do and have done, why is that such a strong importance that you place on that and wanted to make sure I got that distinction? For me, I think what's really important in, in Aboriginal communities is around that knowledge transmission. Within our kinship structures, we can get that from our mothers, from our fathers, you know, the important role that grandparents play in Aboriginal families as well but also the, the roles of aunties and uncles as well. When I talk about that knowledge transmission, a lot of that can be around you know, cultural obligations, mm-hmm. assisting with issues around identity, assisting around issues of cultural practice right. as yes. well. It's, can be in such, those ideas can really stand in contrast to other kind of understandings that we can potentially bring to this work, can't we, around individuals holding knowledge or strengths. You know, the individual is like a hero in their own life a little bit. And I guess what you're highlighting has me thinking a bit about how much richer our conversations and the stories of people's lives can be when we can link them to others. Certainly that's one of the contributions I think that Aboriginal families have made to my work more broadly uh, as well, was really always seeking to be on the lookout for those uh, connections and contributions that other people in life have made to not just, you know, skills and strengths, but also, you know, what's important uh, to people yeah. as well. So, yeah. And what did you think of that idea about how those um, strengths may not always be enough 
to overcome a problem, but they're still significant even though they don't necessarily solve the problem. Is that something that you've found in your work as well, that they're still worthy of conversation, those things, even if problems aren't solved for families? Yeah, absolutely. And some of the work which I've done with Aboriginal men mm. who have been in, incarcerated, mm. this is one of the areas where we've, we've spent a little bit of time unpacking mm. that, looking at what their individual strengths are within that to manage those type of issues. Yes but also who can support them within that as yeah. well, which is equally as important. And we try to say in, in the framework that we work within, which is based on narrative practice, mm. is that in particular with Aboriginal men who aren't as easy to talk about issues that impact or, or weigh heavily on them. Mm. So it's around at least having some dialogue with another Aboriginal man who may have experienced some similar issues mm. to them or, or, or may not have, but it's around getting them to initially open up. One of the phrases that we use is problem shared is problem halved, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that there's strength in numbers for us as Aboriginal men in particular. Yes. Does that make different things possible for those men to hear these uh, stories, these accounts from other men in some way? It's almost about sort of debunking some of those myths of men in general, that we can manage things by ourselves. Men don't show emotion. Mm. So it's almost pushing back on some of those sort of stereotypes and, and, and some of the things that we hear about neurobiology of the brain of a child and, and the various development stages of children and the key role that dads can play within that from a very, very early age. So we, we try to debunk a few of those myths and challenge some of those maybe old way of, yeah. of practice. I think that's one of the things I value about, um, you know, and I'm grateful for in terms of narrative practices, sort of ways of having conversations that help debunk those myths or yeah. call into question those kind yeah. of taken for granted ideas about how life uh, should be and be listening out perhaps for exceptions for when, an example we've just given, I guess, men have um, perhaps done things that might be outside um, what might be obligated onto them, what might be required of them, I guess, yep. but, uh, but have found other ways to perhaps be a father, like you were saying, or be a partner. Yep and then you know bring those into storylines to sort of start to ask a bit more about some of the history perhaps of these values or these ways of being a father that they prefer yep because they don't come out of nowhere do they no. again they have a history a cultural history they've come from somewhere and um it's not easy but i think yeah we can try and find ways to co-research yeah yep. with the men you know the history of that in their life and who might have might have contributed to that being uh, important it might be um family or extended family or, or others one of the key exercises that we do with the men is um and, and one that I'm, I'm really passionate about is we do a, a comparison of fathers versus dads and what do you align more with um when we put it more broadly to the group mm. it's a very interesting conversation myself personally i believe there is a difference mm -hmm. and i always talk to my children about you know, you call me dad. Mm. I'd rather prefer to be dad. Or in Naranjali, we use the word Nungai. Okay. So they call me dad or yes. call me Nungai. And the reason I say that, and I share that with the men, is that I think dads have an investment of time into their children, mm -hmm. where a father can biologically make a child. Yes. And for me, it's about the investment that you can put into the child, mm -hmm. and you reap what you sow. What I premise at the start is that it's, there's no right or wrong here uh, around that, but it does unpack a conversation of the roles of whether you're calling yourself a father mm. or a dad, mm. and then also within that, debunking some myths. Your comments remind me about the importance of uh, paying attention to language, actually. You know, and the people we meet with when we're meeting with um, Aboriginal families and parents or children, that encouragement to stay close to people's own 
own words. You know, you're drawing distinction between father and dad there, and I guess that so each of those concepts evokes different responsibilities and different values perhaps, but the broader idea around paying attention to language and staying close to people's words, is that something that you and your colleagues have kind of found helpful in your work, that close attention to how people describe, you know, language their own experience? Yeah, absolutely. We take that as a cue and a key when we're in those sort of groups having those discussions and we're conscious of using where we can the language in which they're laying out and, and describing as well so that they can hear that reflect back to them in that language. When I use language from, a, from an Aboriginal perspective, yes. mm. that, that's another context because one of the things that not all nation groups are exposed to is the ability of their mother tongue, their own language. But what they do like to hear is a dialect of Aboriginal language, even though it's not theirs, mm. they're drawn to it, they, they resonate right. to it. Yeah. Well, what do you think that offers them to hear even a dialect of another Aboriginal nation's language? Yeah. It's still exposing them to, to culture right. and cultural practice, right. mm. which for some nation groups hasn't always been the case. In particular, a lot of the nation groups in, that I've worked with closely in, in Victoria, mm. in, in particular Vic country mm -hmm. regions, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they haven't had the exposure or the continuity of that culture and in particular language kept alive for them. It's interesting for me as a non-Aboriginal practitioner to think about it. So, okay, what are the implications of that for my work then? You know, what you've just told me. Yeah, I guess one of the key things that we've tried to do in some of that work with other Aboriginal men is how important it is to establish the relationship and the rapport with them, which has to be built in a foundation of trust. Yes. And sometimes that takes a little bit of, little bit of time to establish that. I guess as, as a seasoned practitioner yourself there, Chris, how do you sort of go about setting up, sort of cultivating that relationship, that rapport with your clients? I think for me, establishing that relationship is important. One thing I find really important is to really attend to the power relations in the room. I'm wanting to um, give the people I meet with a real say over lots of things about our conversation. Mm. You know, I want to sort of um, really establish that ethic of collaboration between them, you know, that I'm sort of positioning myself not as, a, not as an expert on their life, but that I've got some skills perhaps around asking questions and having helpful conversations. But in fact, uh, what's important is that I'm really understanding how they describe their situation and what their concerns are, but also what's important to them. Yeah. And so I highlight that last point by really wanting to understand the person beyond the reach of the problem. What's important to them in terms of their relationships or what they really give value to in terms of how they are as a person or partner or parent or child. So people have a chance to speak about other aspects of themselves and other aspects of their identity besides perhaps how the problem is portraying them or how they're positioned by the problem or even positioned by service systems that they're involved with as well. And I feel that by giving people a, a different place to stand in relation to their identity, one that is um, honourable and um, is agentic as well, to then speak about what's problematic, you know, they can speak from a different position about that. And maybe that's one thing perhaps that contributes to, to trust as well as giving people, I think, a real say over what we talk about, making sure that I'm asking people's permission to ask them about particular things, e even good things, even about, you know, uh, strengths and skills or what's important to them, to be always asking, is it okay if I ask you a bit more about that? And also there are many other more significant 
relationships in their life that are going to endure beyond our working relationship. And so I guess what I hope to do is also somehow elevate those relationships in how we speak. We're talking about um, exploring the contribution perhaps that other people have made to their life, but also the contribution that they're making to other people's lives in their families and communities as well. So this notion of two-way contribution. So there are a couple of things I think about when you ask me that yeah. question around those ideas of relationship and, and trust in that working relationship. Yeah. One of the things I always say to non-Aboriginal colleagues who are working with Aboriginal people, either individually or families, mm. is that in terms of that, that initial first meeting, whilst as a worker there's maybe a level of assessment that might be going on, well, there's actually two assessments going on <laughs> right. at the same time mm. in that. Mm. One is the, the person themselves assessing you mm. and essentially asking themselves, a quick, can this person be trusted with my stories? Yeah, right as an Aboriginal person. And one of the things I always like to impart is that, you know, you never get a second opportunity to make a good first impression. Oh, yes. And I think with, in particular with Aboriginal people, first impressions count mm. in terms of the very first engagement, not only that you have as, as the worker, mm. and, and I'm always conscious about this when I talk to organisations, but it's also the, the engagement as they come into that door oh. for the first time. Having a, a synergy of energy from the moment they walk into the door yeah. until the first time that they sit down. Really building that strong rapport mm -hmm. and the ability yeah. to remain inquisitive in that, which I think obviously is a big part of narrative mm -hmm. practices and asking those questions with permission when you are inquisitive. Mm -hmm. Hearing you speak about assessment also reminds me around um, this idea of uh, two assessments happening in the room. Like, sure, I might be required to make an assessment, whatever that means, for that context of the person I'm working with. But again, I think what narrative ideas invite me into is to be thinking a bit about how can that assessment be as collaborative as possible yeah. to mitigate that power uh, relation, to actually be um, finding ways to uh, enable the person to be um, assessing life and making their own evaluation of what's problematic, as well as what they prefer in their life as well. And assessing the kind of skills and strengths and cultural stories that are helpful for them as well. well. I mean, how important is it in assessments to give people, give families a chance to speak about, to be assessed, if you like, for their strengths and skills and, you know, what, what sustains them? Does that offer something Aboriginal to Aboriginal families in some way? Yeah, I believe it does. I think it can have an effect of by just sort of having that conversation with you, them and sort of reutilizing their language back to them, that it actually will, can demonstrate to them that there are a source of supports that are around them, even though they, they might not initially see them or um, as the supports that they actually require. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's what's worthwhile doing those. I think a lot of our assessments are certainly done in the, in the deficit model. And I do have some concerns about that if, if that's unpacked at a great deal of length in terms of their problem story becoming uh, too big where they, they might feel that there's no hope in terms of managing their way through that. Right. If it's magnified and that, that's the constant starting point, yeah, yeah, that there certainly are other strengths that 
need as equal amount of time yes. to be magnified yeah. to them as well. And if they aren't spoken about, those other stories yeah. in, of uh, strengths and skills and what's yeah. important, then by default the problems are magnified, aren't they? Because yes. they're the only story that people get to speak about, I guess, in that sense. And, uh, absolutely. And I think it's interesting too to, you know, like we might hear about uh, certain, you know, what might be called strengths in families or ideas around their resilience. I think when we do some of the work that we do with, with in particular Aboriginal men uh, mm. within the prison system, mm. it's around getting them to identify and, and using that collaborative approach and that peer approach of, of what skills individuals have utilised. Mm -hmm. So just asking them, can you tell us a time when you used yeah. uh, this skill or whatever? Yeah. Sometimes it's not always easy to get onto these themes though with people, mm -hmm. I find. They're not always readily available for people to speak about, are they? Because often the problems are more prominent, particularly if they've uh, had to tell and retell <coughs> stories of what's problematic, they're much more much more prominent in people's lives, uh, how it is that you can kind of find ways to hear or ask about other, other stories of life. Is there things you've learnt or discovered about what's helpful? One of the things that we do in terms of setting that up in that particular environment is, is some giving of ourselves in that as the okay. facilitators, mm -hmm. sharing bits of our story, right. which doesn't replicate their experiences or not, but it, it's a bit of a space where they get a sense of why we're in the room mm -hmm. and not just as you know paid employees why we're invested in in this type of work specifically okay. so in that I'm, I'm really probably unpacking my own personal values mm -hmm. and, and principles mm -hmm. and in particular my own work history of trying to support aboriginal men mm -hmm. in, in a number of fields and so i think it's an opportunity for them to hear from me specifically if i'm wanting them to share certain elements of their life and, and being conscious that Perhaps they've never done that before, mm -hmm. in particular a group setting, which is not for everyone mm -hmm. in terms of sharing that level of detail. But I think if you, if you do set up the environment where you can get that buy-in and that trust yes. in the room, and that's by yourself giving something in that context mm -hmm. as well. Obviously, it's a little different for me as an Aboriginal man, so yes. I, I can speak to certain things about you know, who my nation group is yes. and, and, and those type of things. Um, which does go a ways in sort of creating a bit of a link, but I think it's more personally when I sort of drill down more specifically about my values and principles. Mm -hmm. Within that, one of the exercises we do is that we talk about heroes or important people in our lives, oh. and we do that at a, in a family context, mm. at, at a regional level, at a state level, and at a national level, and they're specifically describing the values and principles of that. So when we normally talk about who's in their family, I would say 80% of the men that we've worked with over three years would describe an Aboriginal female within their family, usually mum, nana, auntie or big sister. Then we unpack with them around, what is it about nana? And some of the things we hear is, you know, tough love, you know, tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, unconditional love, no matter their decision making from a child into adulthood. Mm. There's always unconditional, unconditional love. And I guess as they speak about these figures, these from their life, the room becomes a lot fuller, doesn't it? There's, there's many other people in the room, I guess, as they evoke these people. Ab absolutely it does. And I'm, I'm trying to put a little bit of onus of about us as men in the roles of dads and grandfathers and significant uncles. When are we going to take up that challenge of being more present in being described in the same way that a lot of these men were talking about, their mums, their nanas, their aunties. Do you think that 
question or that exploration kind of interests those fathers that you're working with? It does because it essentially starts getting down and talking about parenting practices and child rearing, child raising, issues which all men have had different experiences uh, within that. A lot of them without any Aboriginal male role models, in particular through their formative years within that. Yeah, I guess, you know, in thinking about my work with Aboriginal families, parents, young people, children, I think one thing I'm always concerned about is sort of um, that I might inadvertently bring in my own taken for granted ideas about how family life should be or how parenting should be or that kind of thing. So my, I guess my concern is that I can be inadvertently kind of imposing those assumptions on people or disqualifying perhaps inadvertently and not explicitly but you know disqualifying their experiences or what's important to them. But do you have some initial reflections on that in terms of other work you've done in partnership with non-Aboriginal practitioners? What's, what's important and helpful for us in those circumstances? I guess to take a, a bit of a decentered approach to that, which is, I think, always easier said than done, because I think we're all shaped by our own set of values and, and principles, and in particular around issues of you know, child rearing, child mm. raising. Mm. We all might have our own points of view in relation to that. Yes. But I guess is around really not dominating their sessions by their own values and principles in that. Given in mind that we've all in that field have issues of mandatory notification yeah. and those type of things. But allowing the individual and the family to talk about their child rearing practice. Right. And I think it's about what are the strengths and the highlights within that, yeah. which might contradict or rub up against, like I said, your own values and principles. But there's there's many strengths within Aboriginal families around child rearing and child raising. Mm -hmm. And in particular, you know, the, the broader kinship network that exists within within Aboriginal families and how that can add value to the child rearing and child raising perspective mm -hmm. of that particular child or those particular children within that family. So do you well? think it's important to co-research that a bit, those other people that contribute to um, caring for children or raising children as well? Like, So for me to be making sure I'm asking those questions? Yes. I, I think about my own experiences in growing up and who were key people in my life through those child rearing processes. Mm. And it was family on both sides of my mum and dad's right, right. that had an impact in, in, in shaped me mm. as a child. And I saw it as an absolute strength. Is there a story that comes to mind from your own life about that? I remember as a young fella growing up uh, through that Christmas period, I would actually gravitate with a group of cousins, five or six of us, and we would go from my place until mum would say, right, you've been here a week, get going, because there's five of us and we'd all be eating all the food in the house. <laughs> Get going. So we'd go down to another auntie's house and we hang out there for a week and it might be closer to the swimming pool. So we strategically position ourselves at that auntie's house and she's like, right, you've eaten all the food here. Get going. And so we, we just keep shuttling around to six different homesteads. And my mum always knew where I was, that I was safe, that I was being fed, that I was, wasn't out doing things that would uh, disappoint her or get her angry. Uh, but we had this sort of network of family that we would gravitate around. And 
I don't think that that networks as prominent now in the Aboriginal community that I grew up in. Yeah. And, and I talk with this about with other fellas who are around my age mm -hmm. as well. And it's, and it's something that we've, you know, we've identified right, right. with. Yeah. We're always within an, in a network of, of love and family mm. within that. And even though we might necessarily see our own mothers or fathers a lot in that time, yeah. they knew we were safe and knew what we were doing. So, you know, when you hear that saying, it takes a village mm. to raise a child, mm. that was essentially how I, mm. how I grew up. There was a Nuttingerty network of family and love, discipline that we grew up in and around. Right. We've been talking a bit about the importance of getting onto storylines of skills and strengths that aren't just about individuals, but, you know, link people to um, culture and community and land and, and family. And for some Aboriginal families, some Aboriginal people, this is those connections are fairly tenuous, I guess, or non-existent. So um, I'd be interested in hearing a bit more about that and, and how you go about responding to that because yeah. um, we can talk about you know these connections but sometimes I guess people don't experience them as connections do they to land or culture yeah absolutely that was something that was really brought to sort of my attention with some of that work that I've done a lot of our mob are quite disconnected from their cultural heritage and as a component of that there's been that interruption in that knowledge transmission yes translation so people have more questions than, than answers within that and it impacts heavily. Yeah, and, and it's something that I had to be quite conscious of because when I can speak very proudly about my, my heritage and my lineage, it almost magnifies their disconnection yeah. within that. And it was something I really had to change my practice in terms of how I introduced that. Yeah, right. And I remember a couple of men coming up to me sort of individually and saying that, that hey brother, it's really proud you're really proud when you talk like that and but it kind of highlights to me how far I'm away from where you are mm. so yeah we, we have a lot of we have a lot of men and women and and our children out there searching for their identity for their firstly where they fit within their own families and then where they fit within that particular nation that they belong to mm -hmm. it has me thinking of not assuming that yeah, yeah but somehow finding ways to ask carefully about that um, yeah who can ally with them who can support them in their in their journey right. of that cultural discovery i really like that you know who can assist them in that yeah, yeah discovery and that exploration because again it yeah. sort of takes it away from an individualized kind of pursuit doesn't it yeah. and it's a, a broader project and probably highlights also the um, political nature of what we're talking about here yeah. this disconnection is really not an individual failing is it a result no. of all sorts of uh, policies and practices over yeah. a long period of time that have led to that yeah. Another exercise that works very well with the men is the tree of life exercise mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we've, we've introduced. Yeah, so this is a narrative methodology, yeah. the tree of yeah. tree of life, using yeah. the tree as a metaphor. Yeah, mm. yep, mm. yep. It certainly offers them ability when we're looking at the branches about who are the supports oh. within that. Mm -hmm. And I guess when we talk about the the roots of the tree, inevitably in that sort of context, it, it starts talking about their cultural identity mm -hmm. seems to lend itself to those roots of the trees. It gets them to think a little bit broader in, right. in that context. Yes, because it enables them to sort of speak about these other aspects of life, yep. like you've just described, that they wouldn't otherwise get to sort of say so much about, I guess, and reconnect with those. Bill, our time's coming to an end, so I'd just like to really express my appreciation for speaking with me today and being so generous and sharing with us your knowledge and uh, for some of the personal stories 
you've shared as well as yeah, some other reflections which have really had me thinking a lot about my own practice as well so thanks for joining us on this Emerging Minds podcast. Thanks thanks for having me Chris. Yeah, it's been a good yarn today. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.